Amen. That's my favorite worship team right there. Forget, forget Hillsong and Elevation. Take fresh water any day. Um, so I'm Jake. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, they already set it up that they want a voice to men voice. So what I thought is I'd teach the entire sermon with that voice. Is everyone good with that? All right, so let's start off. All right, here we go. So baby, here's where we... Just kidding. Uh, we're continuing this morning uh, in our series in the book of Acts. We'll be at Acts chapter 9 if you want to turn there. Uh, but before we get to that, I want to share a little story. When I was in elementary school, I had this rivalry with a kid named David. He moved into our school when I was uh, in fifth grade, and uh, he came into our class and immediately started dating the girl that I liked. Uh, and then he was a better athlete than me, too, so I didn't like him at all. <laughs> and so we had this rivalry, and th that year we actually met in Little League, and I thought, this is my opportunity. Like, this is going to be the moment that David goes down. It's mano a mano, me versus David. It didn't matter that there were a bunch of other kids on the field. It was me versus him. And so uh, as we got into the game, I pitched that day, and I thought, this is my chance. David's going down. So I was like, I'm going to strike him out. We're going to win this game. It's going to be amazing. Well, it didn't go that way. I gave up a bunch of runs. He got a hit off me, and we lost. And so as we were going through the line uh, to shake hands, I'm sitting there crying, and he's coming through with like his smile, his gloating smile because they won. And he's like, why are you crying? Like, what's wrong with you? And I, I was so mad because I wanted to beat David, but I just couldn't do it. I couldn't beat him in anything. And have you ever had a rival like that? Have you ever had someone that you just wanted to beat so bad, but you just couldn't? They seem to keep winning. Throughout history, we see rivalries all over the place, right? So like, uh, you could even name a few of them. You can think of like the United States versus the Soviet Union during the Cold War, right? That's a really serious one. Uh, then you also had the Hatfields versus the McCoys in Appalachia, right? And then you also may think of like Rocky versus Apollo Creed. That was a really good one for some of our guys in here. Bill Gates versus Steve Jobs in Silicon Valley. You had McDonald's versus their ice cream machine. That's a really good rivalry that happens. Um, now, I'm a huge sports fan. Uh, we see rivalries all throughout the sports world, right? So you have the Boston Red Sox. They cannot stand the New York Yankees, okay? The Ohio State fans, we cannot stand the whole state of Michigan, right, Norm? All right, just checking. Cleveland Browns fans, we can't stand our quarterback ever, like ever, ever, ever. <laughs> Um, but we also can't stand the Steelers or the Ravens. Uh, and heck, as a, as a Browns fan, I'm going to be honest, I can't even stand myself sometimes for rooting for them. So <laughs> it just feels like rivalries are everywhere. They're all around us. And what we know about rivalries is when you're in one, the other side is the enemy, right? And so what enemies do to one another is they try to hurt one another. When I was in college, I went to uh, Mount Vernon Nazarene University. I played baseball down there. And uh, we, had a, we had a bunch of rivalries, but our main one was with the other Christian college, uh, Cedarville University, in our conference. And so there were all kinds of talks my first year before we went down there about all the tensions that were happening between the two teams the last year. And so there were heightened tensions going into the series my first year playing. And so we get down there, and Cedarville is the enemy. And we have this shortstop. I'm going to call him Ryan just to protect his identity. But Ryan liked to fight, okay? So prepare yourself for that. So we get into the game, and there's a runner on first base in the third inning, and uh, someone grounds the ball to shortstop, which is where Ryan is, is. And so he fields the ball, and the runner's barreling towards second, and Ryan's trying to get to second for the force out, and it's like slow motion happens because we all realize this is not going to be good. And so the runner gets there, and he slides with his spikes in the air. Now, if you're a baseball fan, you would know that spikes in the air is a big no-no, right? Like you could hurt somebody. And so he hits him, he spikes him in the leg. You can see it gash open. It's bleeding through. And they're on the ground wrestling, like the play's over. They're wrestling with one another. And the dugouts are up at, like everyone's up at the top of the dugout, ready to fight. And I thought like the irony of it, I'm standing there at the top of the dugout and I'm like, 
This is actually really comical. If there was like viral video at this point, can you imagine the headline of this? So two conservative Christian colleges <laughs> erupt in a violent brawl during a baseball game. I was just imagining that, the ridiculousness of that. And so after the fight, everything gets broken up, right? And, and uh, Ryan comes into the dugout after uh, that inning and my coach looks at him and he says, like, dude, what were you thinking trying to fight that guy? And Ryan, as serious as the day, he looked at him and he said, he said, coach, he tried to hurt me. Like, what did you want me to do? And the reality is enemies, they try to injure one another. And when someone wounds us, our natural reaction is we want to wound them back, right? That's what we want to do. When we look around the world right now, I think many of us would agree that we're living in a time of widespread conflict. Uh, this is a day and age where there are divisive speech, angry opinions, bitterness. Everybody seems to be looking for an enemy or someone that they can wound. And that leaves many of us walking around as the wounded. According to studies, nearly half of American adults say that their personal relationships have been injured over the past two years. And studies show that many of us are working through post-traumatic stress, confusion, anger. See, people have done hurtful things. They've said painful things. They've acted in ways that have wounded us. And what psychologists would tell us is that when that happens to us, we have two natural reactions. We either fight back or we run. And so some of this past, uh, the past few years, we've, we've fought back. we fought back maybe on social media or in, or in person. And others of us have pulled back from the world. It's been really easy to look at the mess, and I'm, I include myself in this. And we just say, like, I'm just going to work my job. I'm going to take care of my family. I'm going to lay low. It's, it's too peoply out there, right? You ever heard that phrase? Honestly, uh, we get to a point uh, where we're just tired of people. We're tired of their opinions and their hurtful words and their inconsistent actions. And honestly, we're just tired of being wounded. Some of us in this room have had conflict with our families. Some have lost friends. Many in our medical field are worn out or burned out. Others are weary of the people on the other side of the political spectrum. And over time, with all that chaos, all that pain that happens, we do the natural thing. We put up this barrier of protection around our heart, and our heart grows cold to others. And as we've talked this morning, if we're honest, many of us have actually begun to think of a specific person in our mind, a specific person in our life. It's a family member who wounded you, a bully who humiliated you, a boss who treated you unfairly, a friend who belittled you, a spouse who betrayed you. They wounded us, and so we've hardened our heart toward them. See, deep down, all of us want to love like Jesus loves, right? Like, I think if we're honest as followers of Jesus, we want to love like Jesus loves, but sometimes that pain that the person causes feels like it's just way too much. And so our heart closes off. So the question this morning is, what do we do when our heart grows cold? How do we reopen our heart to love people and to be ready to do what God has for us, the restoring work that God has? There are two ideas that we're going to cover this morning, and we're going to move through them as quick as we can. The first is this, how, how does Jesus respond to those that wound him? And then, how can we? What is the pathway to reopen our hearts to those that wound us? So we're going to start this morning in Acts chapter 9. Uh, we meet two enemies here. It's Saul and Ananias. And in the previous chapter, we actually see that Saul is, uh, is killing Christians, um, he is, he's, he's just this enemy of everyone that's a Christian. And he actually participates in the murder of a man named Stephen, who's a Christian in Jerusalem. And, uh, and so it's this horrific injustice, terrible tragedy. Many in, in Jerusalem that are Christians begin to flee the city because they're trying to get away from Saul. And Ananias shows up a little later in the story. He's a Christian at Damascus, which is the town that Saul is headed to, 
to arrest more Christians. So let's pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 9. It says this, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for the letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Saul is a highly educated man. He actually grew up in a town called Tarsus, which was the hub for Greek literature, life, and art. And he also studied the Jewish law under a teacher, one of the greatest teachers of that time named Gamaliel. So he, there was honestly no one as intelligent as Saul around that time. He was equal of anybody. And he was convinced that, that the followers of the way of Jesus were corruption to the Jewish way. Okay, so he's so convinced of this that we find him breathing out threats and murder headed for Damascus. Now, Damascus is this huge flourishing city. There's about 250,000 people that live in the city at that time. And it sits in this beautiful green plain. I want you to imagine this. It's surrounded by all these palm trees, and it actually sits on this river called Barada. Some in that time actually called it paradise on earth. And I wonder, as Saul finishes his walk into Damascus, he heads up a, a mountain called Mount Hermon, and it overlooks this gorgeous land. And I wonder if Saul could have even seen the beauty in front of him. Have you ever met someone that's so consumed with their rage or so consumed with something that they can't even see the amazing things that are right in front of their eyes? And I imagine if this is Saul, consumed with his anger while paradise is right in front of his eyes. Yet God, God grabs his attention. He shines a light around Saul is what we read. See, Saul thought he was in control. He thinks he's in control as he heads into Damascus. And it honestly seems like he is, doesn't it? Like he's the one winning in the story. He's the one arresting and killing Christians. It's certainly not the followers of Jesus that seem to be winning. But in the middle of this evil, right in the middle of the chaos, I want you to hear that. Right in the middle of the chaos, God displays his control publicly. It says later in the book of Acts that, that the light that shined around Saul is brighter than the midday sun. And so one minute, Saul is strong and steady, and the next moment, he's flat on his face. This is an inbreaking of heaven. It's an inbreaking of the power of God. See, God is trying to speak to Saul, and I think to us through the story, he's trying to say, Saul, you are not in control. Caiaphas, he was the high priest at the time who had given Saul the ability to arrest and to kill. Caiaphas, you are not in control. The powerful Roman rulers, you are not in control. There is no one in control of this but me, the almighty God. Have you ever looked at your wounder in this light? Honestly, your wounder seems like they have unbridled power, don't they? They've hurt you. They could probably wound you again. But God says, I'm in control. Right this morning, I'm in control. The abuser is not in control. The liar is not in control. The rulers are not in control. The, the, the rage-filled person is not in control. The one who hurt you is not in control. God says, I am in full control. I'm in full control of that person. And in our story, God is in control of Saul. So God decides that the time is over. He's been persecuting Christians long enough, and he steps in Jesus' words in verse 4. He says, he doesn't say this. I want you to hear this. He doesn't say, why are you persecuting my followers? What does Jesus say in verse 4? He says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? See, Jesus identifies so closely with his followers that when they suffer, he suffers with them. Can you imagine the pain that Saul caused? Wives and husbands and children. 
left behind to face the unjust murder of their loved one, friends bearing that weight of grief. And then a light shines around Saul. And we think, like, as we're reading the story, if we're honest, we think, like, yes, like, finally. Finally, Saul gets the justice that he deserves. Finally, he's going to get what God is giving him as his due. And we think, like, God, you're incredibly creative. Like, this is a great idea. Like, shine a laser beam from heaven, cook him up. It's going to be amazing, right? Fry him up like he's been on the beach, right, with, with like, uh, a suntan, not suntan lotion, but, like, baby oil on him. All day long, he's going to come out looking like a lobster all cooked up. I actually like that idea. Don't you guys? Like, just shine the laser beam down, and it's like, and it just, just cooks him. Well, we were at Bueller's the other day. Uh, we were with our kids. We were wheeling them past the meat section. If, you, if you've ever been there in Wadsworth, there's a lobster tank there. And so there are these lobsters crawling all, all over one another. And our kids were enthralled with it naturally. They had a million questions, right? And so you need to know this before I share this story. My son is a protector. So he loves bugs. He loves animals. He basically loves every living thing. And so we passed the lobster tank at Bueller's. And, and he says, Dad, what are those? And I'm like, well, those are lobsters, buddy. And he had seen them in cartoons, so I think he, he got the idea. And his eyes got really wide, okay? So, and he asked, well, can, can people buy them? And I'm like, yep, yeah, they can. Now, I wasn't sure where this was headed at this point. So as his eyes start filling with possibilities, and he looks at me and he's, he goes, do they, do they take them home to be their pets? And I'm like, not exactly, all right? <laughs> Not exactly. So he looks really confused at this point, and, and he goes, well, Dad, what do they do with them then? And at this point, this is where I cringe. I'm like, oh, my goodness, what am I going to say? I don't know what to say. And uh, so we try to practice being really honest with our kids. Um, so I tell him, well, buddy, they take them home. And I look at his tender little face and his wide, hopeful eyes. And, buddy, um, they take them home, and they cook them. And his eyes begin to fill up with tears, right? And so I want to say, I want to go, no, 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 don't do that, buddy. Don't, don't do that, buddy. They don't cook them. They cook, they cook for them. They cook for them. That's what they do. They, they take them home and they place a seat at the table, right? They, and they begin to cook them up sea urchins and fish. And the lobsters have this nice, warm, home-cooked meal. Here, I'll show you. We'll actually buy one and we'll take him home and we'll, we'll put one of those tiny little bibs on him. You know the ones with the lobsters? Actually, don't forget that part. We're not going to do that. We'll take him home, set him a seat, cook him some salmon, and then you get to name him. You can, it's going to be great, buddy. You're going to love it. Please don't cry. Like, that's what I wanted to say at that point. But being the dad that I am, I keep wheeling the cart and I'm like, well, yeah, buddy. Um, yeah, people, they, they torture the lobsters in a boiling pan of water. <laughs> and then... And then they fry them until they're bright red, and then they eat them with butter on it. It's, it's actually pretty good. Like, it's actually pretty yummy. But that's, that's often what we hope Jesus would do to our enemies, isn't it? Like, just cook them like a lobster, Jesus. In our story, Jesus shines this piercing light on Saul, and we get excited for justice to come. We think, put him on a barbecue. Like, that would be justice. That would be what he deserves. And then Jesus speaks two words to him. He says, Saul, Saul. These are not words of condemnation or rebuke. And we think, like, are you serious, God? Are you serious? This is really what you're going to do? When, is, when are you going to cook him? It's getting close to midday. Lunchtime's coming. I'm hungry for some enemy bisque right now. Like, cook him up. We just want Jesus to do that. Come on. But instead, Jesus speaks tender words filled with deep emotion for Saul. See, in the Gospels, whenever Jesus repeats someone's name twice like this, it's a tender word. It's a word of deep compassion and love. Saul had wounded Jesus. 
Jesus was an enemy to Saul. Saul was an enemy to Jesus. But Jesus doesn't destroy him. In verse 6, he speaks words of a future for Saul. Do you get that? Like if you read that, it's not, a, it's not a word of destruction. It's a word of future. It's as if Jesus says something like, Saul, Saul, I'm Jesus. This is not the end. And even though you're my enemy, you have a future. And he tells him, go into Damascus and I will show you what to do. So then in verse seven, it says this. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And Saul rose from the ground. And although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. For three days, he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Saul must have felt completely helpless at this point. The trip from Jerusalem to Damascus was about 135 miles. This would be the equivalent of of walking from here down to Columbus. It's about a six-day journey by foot. And Saul, at this point, was now a different man. He had left Jerusalem, this fire-breathing, self-assured man, his chest out, intent on harming any Christian he could find. But he enters Damascus blind, broken, shoulders slumped, and led by the hand of another. He was physically defeated. And on top of that, did you catch this? Saul's entire belief system has been destroyed. He'd been pouring his energy and his life into arresting Christians, which meant that Saul believed that Jesus was dead and that Jesus's followers were worthy of death. So he built his entire life on the reality that he thought Jesus was a fake. And then in a moment, Jesus appears to him alive. Can you imagine how disorienting that must have been for Saul? We find out later in the book of Acts that Jesus had actually been pricking Saul's heart for quite some time. In Acts 26, it says this, uh, so Saul is giving testimony to King Agrippa, and he's telling him about this conversion moment for Saul. It's the story that we're reading. He's recounting it later. It says this, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of, of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in a raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities, which is what he's doing now. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. And at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me, this is Jesus' voice in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then there's a line here that's not in Acts 9. It's, it's Saul recounting and telling more of the story. He says, Jesus said, Saul, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. Jesus says, Saul, why are you kicking against the goads? In other words, Saul, why do you keep fighting me? Goads were these long, sharp sticks that farmers of that day used to prod oxen forward towards their, their will. And these goads would jab the hind legs of the ox. It would, it would move them further into the work, okay? And so there were times where the oxen would get angry naturally at them being pricked on the back of their legs, and they would kick backwards against the sharp stick. And, and as they would kick back, it would wound their legs all the more as they kicked against the goads. I think we're getting the picture here that Jesus was pricking Saul's heart. He was goading Saul's heart. But Saul kept kicking back and only increased his pain. See, Saul was stubborn. We know that if we, if we read through these stories, we see that Saul was a stubborn person. He was, he was strong-willed in, in a good way, but sometimes to a fault. And he had been under the power of God, but he refused to give in. And God was pressing in on Saul. And this morning, you may have ended up here because you feel like God is pressing in on you. 
And I want to encourage you, it's not a punishment from God. It's not an accident. It's God being merciful and he's saying, it's hard to kick against me. It's hard to rebel. God is pleading with you. He's saying, don't resist. Don't kick against the goads. In our text, Saul's soul is gnawing at him, yet he, he dives all the more deeply into his self-righteousness and his violent, violence. Isn't that often the course of human action? Like, isn't that what we do? In a still or sudden moment, we see the air in our ways and we feel the weight of our sin and the wrongness of our actions. And for a moment, we think like, I need to change. Like, this is my moment. I need to change. But then we ignore it. We tuck it away because it's hard, it's hard to face the reality that we've given our life to the wrong things, isn't it? And so instead of owning our errors, we plunge deeper into them to numb that pain, to numb that guilt. Maybe you've heard the gentle whisper of Jesus in your spirit to stop pursuing those things. You felt that gnawing like, like Saul feels, and you felt the crushing weight of your sin, yet instead of turning, you've plunged yourself deeper into the sin. And honestly, who could blame you? It's our, it's our natural way. But Jesus is coming this morning. He's tenderly whispering to you. He's saying, come to me. You don't have to kick against me anymore. Just come. Just come in to me. Jesus had been pressing on Saul's conscience for some time. And earlier I had mentioned that Saul was a part of the murder of Stephen in Acts 7. When we meet Stephen, he's doing incredible signs and wonders in the name of Christ. And, uh, and then he's immediately arrested and he's put to death, and, and Saul stands by giving approval to Stephen's death. But as he was being murdered, this is an amazing thing. As he was being murdered, Stephen doesn't hurl angry words. He doesn't curse them or spit at them. I mean, honestly, that, that's what would have been expected. That's the natural human instinct when we're being harmed. But instead, Stephen blesses them. He says this, Lord, please don't hold their sin against them. This must have rocked Saul's world. God begins to do something in his heart through this. Because there's something powerful when we forgive those who hurt us. It gives the broken world a glimpse of God. It gives them a picture of God. When man is hurt, they get angry. They fight back. They hate in return. I mean, honestly, who forgives the person that's wounding them? It's such an uncommon, supernatural thing. And Stephen did, and it pricked Saul in the heart. But Saul keeps kicking against the goads. Even after Stephen's death, he's still outwardly brash, and self-assured, but inwardly is torn up. And this is an amazing thing in that Acts 26 passage. Jesus sees his heart, and he actually acknowledges this. I don't know if you caught it the first time we read it. He says this, Saul, it's been hard for you. He said, Saul, I know it's been hard for you. How do we skip over that and not marvel at the compassion of Jesus? I want you to think about that. Jesus understood Saul's pain. He looked at Saul's state and he said, Saul, this must be really hard for you. Like for you to keep kicking against against me, it must be painful for you. Everyone who hurts another person, they're acting out of their own pain. Wounded people, they wound people. When you think of the one who hurt you, have you ever looked at them like Jesus does? Have you ever thought, "It it must be hard for you? Like it must be hard for you. There must be pain in there that I don't see. The anger that you carry, the pride, the self-righteousness that, that leads you to say demeaning things. It must be hard for you to always have to be right. It must be hard for you to never be able to rest, to have to prove yourself all the time. Have you ever looked at the one who wounded you and thought what pain you must be going through to do such terrible things? Maybe ask the question, who wounded you? 
Who hurt you? I have a friend, uh, he was getting off the exit ramp at 21 where Copley Road is. And if you go to that light, uh, there, there, isn't a, there isn't a light there at all. Okay, so you pull up and you can pull up into the left turn lane or the right hand turn lane. He pulls up into the left hand turn lane. And sometimes if you're in that lane, it's tough to see oncoming traffic because the right person that's turning right sort of pulls up too far. You know what I'm talking about? So he pulls up, gets ready to turn left and he can't see anything. And so he just guns it. And it was a bad decision because there's an oncoming car that's just flying this way. So he turns left and this car just flies up and he tries to hit the gas and, and go as fast as he can. But the car actually accelerates right up to with inches of his bumper. And he can tell this guy's mad. He can tell he's furious because as he's looking in the rearview mirror, he can see the guy doing sign language through the windshield. Do you know what I, do you know what I mean? So they pull about 100 yards down, uh, down the road and my friend pulls into a gas station to fill up. And uh, he doesn't realize that this guy's actually followed him in. He thought the guy had continued on. So he pulls in, he goes to the gas tank, he goes to get out. Well, the guy had pulled up like right on his car and had popped out and he was already making his way, cussing and yelling right up to his driver's side door. Now, what I didn't share with you is my friend is 6'5", 250 pounds of pure muscle, okay? So he is just huge. He's a weightlifter. He lifts in a place down in Oroville all the time and he is massive. And so the guy's walking up, this guy's not huge. That's the best way I can say it, okay? So he gets up to the car. And my friend gets out, and immediately his demeanor changes. He realizes that he's in grave danger at this point, okay? So he blurts out something like, well, you're a big son of a gun, except with some expletives in there. Uh, and my friend, now, my friend used to fight people for a lot less than this, okay? So, like, uh, he, he used to fight people for, like, the drop. Basically, if someone asked him to, he'd fight them. But Jesus had changed his life in a major way. He could have stuffed the guy in a trash can, but he actually looked at him. And I love this. He looked at him. And he saw him as a human and he said, hey man, are you doing okay? And immediately, it's, I feel like this is like a miracle of God. Immediately the guy says, you know what? Um, they're downsizing at work. Things have been really hard and I think I'm gonna lose my job. And things at home are hard. My marriage is on the rocks. And they actually, this is like just so ridiculous. They went inside and it only, only my friend, like if you knew this guy, this is the kind of stuff that he does all the time. They go inside and they sit down on a couch in the gas station and talk for 45 minutes about this guy's life. And at one point he asks him, well, do you believe in God? And the guy goes, I don't, I believe in God, but he's obviously not doing anything down here. Like he's no longer here. And my friend has a chance to share with him about the love of Jesus and the hope that he has in Christ. My friend could have fought him, could have wounded him back, but instead he looked at the man and he said, life must be hard for you. Life must be hard for you. See, how do you keep your heart soft toward a wounder, you see them as Jesus sees them. That's how you do it. You see them as a, a broken person in a broken world. You see their wounds, you see their pain. Jesus had compassion on Saul. And then in verse 10, we see this. Now there was a disciple of Damascus named Ananias. So now we're introduced to Ananias here. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come and lay, lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Ananias is an enemy of Saul. You can imagine that Ananias and the other believers were preparing for the arrival of Saul. I want you to think, like, just, just picture if there was a person coming to Wadsworth that, that harmed people with brown hair and brown eyes. What would you do? Well, the people with blonde hair in this room or blue eyes or gray eyes, you just all breathe the sigh of relief. You're like, it's not me. I don't have to worry about that, right? <laughs> people with brown hair, brown eyes, what would we do? 
We would begin to prepare. We would look this person up on Google. We would go to social media to find all the information that we could about this person, and then we would prepare. We would either prepare a plan to attack him, or we would prepare a plan to hide from him. And this is where Ananias is. He knew about Saul. He knew what he was capable of, and he was preparing. It worried him, honestly. He wanted to stay away from Saul, but Jesus says, go to him. So we read in verse 13, but Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard many things about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Ananias had every human reason to question God, didn't he? I mean, God, have you seen what Saul's done? He's murdering people. He hates you, Jesus. Why would I go to him? It doesn't make any sense. And even better, he could have asked the question, like, why don't you send Peter or John or Philip? Like, send one of the apostles out there. He could have had Peter transported right into that living room that very moment. He did it with Philip already. Like, just send him there and let him take care of it. Why didn't you send the apostles? Get this, in his foresight, God places Ananias there to bless the one who cursed him. Do you get that? God places Ananias there to bless the one that cursed him. And God places us here to bless the one that cursed us. God, why did I go through such pain at the hands of that person? Like, why did that happen that they would harm me like that? That was the sin of man. That was the sin of that person that caused that. You might say, well, okay, like, that's fine. Like, I get it. But God, why would you ask me to love them? Why would you ask me to go to them with your love? I mean, that's my wound or that's my enemy. Why don't you send Pastor Len? Why don't you send Billy Graham? Why don't you send the guy that wrote The Purpose Driven Life? What is he doing anymore? There are a thousand others that God could send, but he says, because I've placed you here. I've placed you in that family. I've placed you in that job. I've placed you in that relationship. I didn't cause the pain, but I can use the pain to show a broken world my love. I can use the pain to reveal my love to you and to them. So in verse 17, we read, Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. So Ananias gets up and he goes, how did Ananias keep such a soft heart? It would have been easy for him to hate Saul. It's really easy for us to hate those who hurt us and hate us. But Ananias walks into his enemy and he greets him, not with a cursed word, but with a blessing. He says, brother Saul. Can you imagine how that must have struck Saul's heart? How it must have struck Saul's heart with the, with the grace that he so desperately needed. He had to think if this man who I wanted to kill just hours before could love me like this, could not Jesus love me like this? We're in a world starving for grace. Honestly, it's so, it's so rare uh, in our world that it's startling when we see somebody love a person that hurt them, isn't it? Like it's almost like, like someone punches us in the face. It's so out of the ordinary to see that. And Ananias had a supernatural tenderness that only God could give. So he walks in and he lays hands on Saul. And some of us are like, God, you tell me where my enemy is and I'll walk in and lay some real hands on that brother. It's not those kind of hands. 
He walks in, places his hands, and he says, Brother Saul, and he blesses him. He touches him, and, and Saul's eyes are healed. He touches him, and he's filled with the Holy Spirit. See, Ananias was not strung up in bitterness. He wasn't held up in fear. He wasn't bound up in unforgiveness. His heart was soft and ready to do the work of restoration that God had. And this was the heart of Jesus for Saul. When someone wounds us, our natural tendency is to wound them back or cut them off. But Ananias kept his heart soft like Jesus. So the question is, how do we regain a heart like that? There are two steps this morning. I'm gonna move through these fairly quickly. Um, these are the pathway, the pathway, the only pathway to a soft heart, because this is the way of Jesus. And uh, these are going to seem extremely simple in nature, but honestly, they are incredibly difficult. And the first one is this, we must forgive our enemy as Jesus forgave us. We think like, how do, how do I forgive this person after all the pain that they've caused? How do I let them off the hook like that? There's a person in my life who hurt me really deeply in one of the darkest seasons of my life. I felt betrayed, I felt left behind, and I was so angry at them. I, I felt abandoned by them. After several years, God began to press on my heart and say, I want you to forgive them. And I fought it. I would argue with God, like, how do I, how do I forgive that? You see the wounds, you see the pain that was caused. Like, how do I forgive that person? And God kept pressing on me. And finally, I gave in. I, I sat down with a few trusted people and I began to forgive every wound that this person had caused. I began to, to forgive every debt that, that I had against this person. And honestly, at the end of it, I felt this surge of freedom. And you know what it was? It was waves of the love of God for me. It was the presence of God. When we forgive, we get more of God. He's the great forgiver. During World War II, Corey Ten Boom and her family began to hide Jews. Uh, they began to keep them in their house in Holland. And uh, after a while, the Nazis caught on to them. So one day the Nazis raided their home in Holland and they sent Corey and her family off to the concentration camps. And her sister and her dad actually both died during that time. Corey survived and later she began to travel the world and tell people about the love of Jesus, the forgiveness of Jesus for every sin and the forgiveness that she had for her abusers. And one day she was in a church in Munich and uh, she's speaking about the forgiveness of Jesus and she sees a Nazi officer that was in the concentration camp with her. And here's what she wrote about that moment. I wanna read it. Her words are so powerful. It was in a church in Munich that I saw him, a balding, heavyset man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filing out of the basement room where I had just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the door at the rear. It was 1947 and I had come from Holland to defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. It was the truth that they most needed to hear in that bitter, bombed out land. And I gave them my, my favorite mental picture. Maybe because the sea is never far from a Hollander's mind, I like to think that that's where sins, forgiven sins were thrown. When we confess our sins, I said, God cast them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. The solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. And at the end, people stood up in silence and in silence, they collected their wraps and in silence, they left the room. And that's when I saw him working his way forward against the others. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, the next a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh, harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor. The shame of walking naked past this man, 
I could see my sister's frail frame ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during Nazi occupation of Holland. And this man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. Now he was right in front of me, hand thrust out. He said a fine message. How good it is to know as you say that all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And Corey goes on to write, I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that man's hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among the thousands of women? But I remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. It was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he said. I was a guard in there. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things that I, that I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. And again, the hand came out, will you forgive me? And I stood there. I, I whose sins had every day to be forgiven and could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing that I'd ever had to do, for I had to do it, I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition that we forgive those who injure us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. Since the war, since the end of the war, I had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. And those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able also to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives. Those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart, but forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one that was stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder. It raced down my arm and it sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. Isn't it true that our, our unforgiveness does nothing to the offender? They go on with their life, don't they? Unforgiveness instead binds us. We become prisoners to that wound, to that bitterness. Corey Tenboom, uh, in contemplating her own hate, she went on to write later, forgiveness is the key that unlocks the door of resentment and the handcuffs of hatred. It's a power that breaks the chains of bitterness and the shackles of selfishness. How do you enliven a cold heart? How do you do it? You forgive as Christ forgave you. Saul, after knowing Jesus, wrote in Ephesians 4, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Along with all malice, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. How much bitterness do we put away? All of it. What wrath do we put away? All of it. What anger? All of it. Yeah, but not for that wound, Jesus. Like, not that wound, right, Jesus? All of it, he says. Forgive as Christ forgave you. And then second, we must bless them. 
We must do good to them. So I'm going to move through this really quick. This is Luke 6. You'll see it up on the screen. It says this, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Then down to verse 29. Give to everyone who begs from you, and for one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. But love your enemies and do good, and lend expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your, your heavenly Father is merciful. Jesus says, when you are harmed, don't retaliate. When you are hurt, don't wound back. Do good to them. Don't just give them a pittance of love. Give them an overflow of blessing. In other words, be generous to a fault. Ananias walks into that house on Straight Street, and he actually blesses Saul. There's no noticeable bitterness. In fact, in Acts, it says that Ananias is described as a devout man. He's living clean before God. So there's no bitterness. There's no anger. There's no resentment. And he walks in and he lays his hands on his enemy and he blesses him. It's this ultimate grace reversal. When I was a youth pastor, we spent an evening uh, baking brownies and made them as good as we could make them. The kids actually thought they were going to eat them, but I taught on this passage for about three minutes and I told them, I want you to take that brownie to your enemy. And they looked at me in shock because I think, number one, they thought they were going to eat them. And number two, they were like, you want me to do what? So the next day, one of the kids comes back and they say, you were right. And I said, what do you mean? And they said, well, I gave the brownie to Josh. Josh was her boss. She had been so angry and hurt with him and she gives him the brownie. And I said, well, what did he say? And she, she said, well, first he asked me if I had put anything nasty in it, which would be the common question. And I laughed and I told him no. And she actually pulled off a piece of the brownie and ate it for him just to assure him. And so he ate it. And I said, well, what happened next? And she said, well, he asked me why I did it. And I told him that because Jesus had loved me when I was his enemy and I had done wrong to him. I wanted to bless him in that way. And it was the beginning of a restoration for the relationship. What could your blessing do? Who could your blessing change? Jesus says, bless and do not curse. Be over the top generous to them. There's so many simple ways that you can do it. You could do a kind letter, a gift card, a note. You could pay off a debt that they owe. You could honestly simply pray for them. I've been praying for the one that I've forgiven. I've been asking God to fill their home with healing and his presence and his goodness and his blessing. You may feel anger rising up in you this morning. How dare you ask me to bless? Like, how dare you ask me to bless that person? And I understand, like I, I truly do. I understand at a very personal level. According to human wisdom, it's an outrageous request. We should cancel them, scorch them, and bury them. But when we forgive and bless, we experience the depths of God's grace. Corey Tenboom also wrote this. She said this, you never so touch the ocean of God's love as when you forgive and love your enemies. I don't just want to touch that ocean. I want to dive into it. I want to swim around in it. Mabel Francis was a missionary to Japan in World War II, and she was unjustly placed in an internment camp for years during the war. And upon finally being released at the end of the war, you would have thought she would have left the country. She probably, ideally, you know, she probably would have been bitter towards all the Japanese for that. 
but she stayed. She began to visit wounded Japanese soldiers in the hospital, and um, she would actually take them chocolate bars and other goodies, and she would tell them this line over and over. She said, you've lost the war, but God has something for you yet. You know what breathes life into people? It's not condemnation. It's not holding their failures over their head. You know what breathes life into people? It's grace. All throughout Acts, we see followers of Jesus who love the person that hurt them, and it changes them, and it changes the world. You may ask, how do I even start? Like, where do I begin for this? You may need someone to walk this path with you. We offer a ministry called Steps to Freedom here at the church, and it's actually uh, for a couple of people to walk you through things like this. So if that's something you're interested in, would you come and talk to me? Would you come and talk to one of our pastors? We would love to just walk you through next steps on that. Others this morning, and I want to say this humbly, others this morning, you shouldn't delay. You need to follow the voice of the Holy Spirit right now and forgive. You need to forgive right this minute, right this moment, without hesitation and without reservation. Scripture teaches us that God opposes the proud. That means those that stand far off from him and refuse his voice, he, he is far off from them. He opposes the proud, but it says that he gives grace to the humble. I wanna pray for us. Uh, we're gonna close up. But as we do, if you need to forgive, I wanna encourage you to do it right now. And even if you forgive right now, you may wanna bring someone in on this with you. It's hard. When I, when I walked through mine, I walked through it with Pastor Scott. He walked me through that time. Um, sometimes we need a guide. Sometimes we need someone to help us. But let's go to Jesus and just ask him to guide us. Lord, thank you for your forgiveness. Lord, I'm a, I'm a broken man and I need your forgiveness every day, Lord. And I praise you for that and I thank you for that. And I pray for your supernatural power, the power of your Holy Spirit to fill us, to fill us with tenderness, compassion, grace. And ultimately, Lord, would you soften our heart to forgiveness? Give us a willing spirit and a right heart. We want to, Lord. It's so hard and we need you. Would you help us? And maybe as some are offering forgiveness for the first time to their wounder, Lord, would you fill them with your love? Would you fill them with your Holy Spirit? We need you, Jesus. I pray this in your name, amen.